If I were to ask you what was Jesus' most difficult experience during his earthly life, someone would eventually say that it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you would be right about that. In fact, look what St. Luke says in his rendering of what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Uh, In the MacArthur Study Bible, there's a note, and I want you to listen to this note. This suggests a dangerous condition known as hematidrosis, the effusion of blood in one's perspiration. It can be caused by extreme anguish or physical strain. Subcutaneous capillaries dilate and burst, mingling blood with sweat. Christ himself stated that his distress had brought him to the threshold of death. Many years later, the writer to the Hebrews reflected on this very experience. And I want you to notice what he said in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. Speaking about Jesus, he said, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane was the experience of his very greatest anguish. Uh, Some of you may know that the Garden of Gethsemane is just outside the ancient temple near the foot of the Mount of Olives. In the Garden of Gethsemane to this very day are olive trees that lined the garden and it contained an olive press for pressing olive oil. Do you know what Gethsemane means? It means olive press oil press. And as Jesus faced the cross, he came under the greatest pressure of his life. I want you to think about that. In the place where olives were crushed, he felt crushed by the weight of the cross. Don't we sometimes feel like that? Don't we sometimes feel squeezed by pressure? crushed beyond endurance. Maybe there is somebody here today who feels that way right now. You may feel like you are being crushed in an oil press. You are being squeezed by unrelenting pressure. You know, the Apostle Paul let us in on times in his life when he felt this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, this is what he said, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Do you feel that way today? Have you felt that way in the past? This morning we have one simple question. That question is, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? And I want you to take your Bibles this morning as we seek to answer that question from Mark chapter 14. 
what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what was it that Jesus was teaching us in the hour of His greatest anguish? If you'd like to follow along in the chair Bible in front of you, it's about page 1011, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 32 as we continue this morning in our series in the Gospel of Mark. And listen to what the Bible says. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, oil press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Let's bow together for a moment in prayer. Lord Jesus, this portion of your life is perhaps as dear to us as any other because you let us in to the inner feelings of your life. You are perhaps as open here as, as anywhere in the gospel record about the emotions that you felt as you prepared to go to the cross. And we love you today because of what you did for us, but we thank you that there is something here for us as well in our times when we feel crushed by the pressures that life brings to bear. Teach us now as only your word can, for Jesus' wonderful sake. Amen. As we open this amazing experience in Gethsemane, the first lesson that we have to learn is this. We must all face personal Gethsemanes. Perhaps you have never seen this in this way before, but it is very clear here that we must all face personal Gethsemanes. Now the first thing that uh, arrests our attention is Jesus' emotions. We are told in verse 33 that he was greatly distressed and troubled. Uh, these words have very, very deep and penetrating meaning. They refer to a terrified surprise, a shuddering awe, amazement amounting to consternation. One Bible student said they refer to a distress that follows a great shock. Jesus experienced the emotions that we normally associate with people who are in shock. Another Bible teacher said it is like being in the grip of a shuddering horror in the face of a dreadful prospect. Jesus explained it this way. He said, my soul is sorrowful, very sorrowful, even unto death. The New English Bible translates it this way. My heart is ready to break with grief. And when we ask why, it was not because Jesus was afraid to die. Throughout history, people have faced very, very excruciating deaths with great courage. You know, we just passed the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and a man who preceded Martin Luther was a man named John Huss. Huss was burned at the stake for his faith in Jesus Christ. 
And he faced that excruciating burning at the stake, unafraid. In fact, as he was engulfed by the flames, he sang psalms until he died. If Huss could face death unafraid, so could the Lord of glory. Amen? It was not death itself that caused Jesus to feel overwhelmed, but it was the kind of death that he faced. He describes it in verse 36 as drinking a cup. Drinking a cup. What was in that cup? Well, it was a cup full of sin. Jesus had described in his ministry human sin very graphically. Uh, Look what he one time said is in the heart of all of us in John 7. He said, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and they make a man unclean. Jesus had never personally known any of these sins. But now as he faced the cross, he would have to bear them all. Peter would later write in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore, his, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus would have to be treated as though he was guilty of them all. As I thought about this, I, I couldn't help but remember when I was a teenager, we had a man who came over to our home to work on our septic tank. We didn't have a sewer in those days, and we had a septic tank out in the backyard. And as he worked on that septic tank, and it almost seems a little humorous now, but it wasn't humorous then, the boards were rotted. And as he stood on those boards, they gave way. And he fell into the sewage. The filth of that sewage was so putrid that he didn't even bother to wash those clothes. He just threw them away. And I thought about that. All the sewage of our sin was to be heaped on Jesus. That's what was in that cup. It was also a cup full of wrath. In places like Isaiah 51:17, the cup symbolized God's holy wrath against sin. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says about Jesus that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And God on the cross treated him as though he were a sinner by exhausting his wrath upon Jesus. In doing so, the Bible says he became a curse. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ became a curse for us. For it is written in the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Think about that. The perfect one became the cursed one. And then it was a cup full of separation. Jesus from all eternity had never known disruption of his relationship with his Father. John 1.18 says, From all eternity 
that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. What that denotes is a mutual intimacy, love, and knowledge that existed between the three persons of the Godhead. Can you imagine with me this morning perfect intimacy, perfect love, perfect fellowship now broken? As we enter into chapter 15 in a few weeks, uh, just a few hours from this very episode, Jesus would cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We all know how painful human separation is. Let me ask you, how painful is divine separation? How painful is divine separation? No wonder Jesus sweat great drops of blood. No wonder He said, My heart is ready to break with grief. But there's something more that we need to see here. Why did Jesus bring the inner circle with Him? You will notice in verse 33 that He brought Peter, James, and John into the garden. Now the Bible teaches us that Jesus had concentric circles of fellowship and intimacy. The crowds had a very superficial relationship with Jesus. Uh, the twelve were much closer. The three, Peter, James, and John, were even closer. And then John was the beloved disciple, the one that Jesus was the closest to. Why the inner circle here? Well, it's because they were the closest to Jesus, but they were also the future leaders of the church. And they needed to see the depth of His suffering so that this morning, I could share with you the depth of that suffering. There's something else that's also true here. Jesus was showing them what true discipleship truly is all about. You see, for Him, what He was saying to them as they watched Him, to follow Him meant they would experience their own Gethsemanes. What this is teaching us is the path of the Christian life includes suffering, grief, and pain. It's interesting, just before we began this series of studies in Mark chapter 9, this series that I've been calling Living in the Shadow of the Cross, Jesus in chapter 8 had said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He said, for whoever would seek to save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake and the gospel will save his or her life. What happened to the inner three? James was beheaded. Peter was crucified, tradition says, upside down because he did not feel worthy to be crucified by his Lord. And John was made a prisoner and forced into hard labor in his old age. Augustine, who was a pastor in the 4th century, one time said this, God had one son without sin, 
but he never had one without suffering. Let me say that again. God had one son without sin, but he never had one without suffering. I will not be the exception as I follow Jesus, nor will you. Let me just ask this question. What are you suffering now? Injustice? Disease? Betrayal? Reversal? Heartache? Dashed hopes? Are you suffering under the struggle and pressure of the limitations of your own life? Understand this. It is all part of your Gethsemane as you follow your Master. It is all part of what you must go through as you follow the Savior who suffered for you. You see, the first thing we learn as we ask this question is what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane is that all of us must face our personal Gethsemanes. Let's continue in the story. I want you to notice, secondly, we learn that God is adequate for our Gethsemanes. God is adequate for our Gethsemanes. Look at verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you know in the Gospel of Mark, this is the third time now that Jesus is found praying. Each time he is praying, he is alone, and it is at night, and he is facing a crisis. Jesus was not like many people who prayed just when the crisis came. It was natural for him to pray because he lived a life of prayer. He was constantly in touch with his Father, and he knew by personal experience that there was power in prayer. Not because prayer always changes our circumstances, nor causes our problems to disappear. By the way, did Jesus' cross disappear after this prayer? No, He did not. He still faced the cross. So why then did He pray? We often say that prayer changes things, and I believe all of us know that that is true. But that is not the major reason we pray to have our circumstances to be changed. We pray because it puts us in touch with God. That's why we pray. Here's what happens as we pray. Our souls are exposed to God. And we gain intimacy with Him. As we gain intimacy with God, we become more God-conscious. And as we become more God-conscious, we are able to draw on God's resources. 
So more often than not, prayer does not always change our circumstances, but what it does is it changes us. Let me just pause here for a moment. Whatever you think you have to do this week that is critically important, and it must get done, whatever that is, it is not more important than time with God. Whatever you think you must do this week that is so important, it must get done. It is never more important than time with God. Now, as Jesus prayed, He found that God's resources were adequate with Him. And I assume that in this prayer in verse 36, it's a summary of what Jesus prayed over and over that night as He was in the garden. Look at the resources that Jesus was able to draw upon. And brothers and sisters, if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you see those resources? In your Gethsemane, you may draw on them as well. Let's look at them one at a time for just a moment. Jesus drew on the Father's love. He prayed, Abba, Father. As you know, this is an Aramaic word, and it is a word that literally meant Papa. It was the first word that a child would utter when it spoke. Today, we would say, Dada, Dada. And it spoke of intimacy and closeness with the Father. Now, no Jew ever prayed this way because they believed such intimacy with the Father was out of place for a human being. But Jesus prayed regularly this way, Abba, Father, because He was conscious of His special intimacy with God, and therefore He found strength in God's love. Now let me ask you, as believers, do we have the same privilege of praying, Abba, Father? Read Galatians. Read Romans. We have the same privilege. You see, one of the questions that we always ask and always face is this. If God loves me, why is this happening to me? Billy Graham said if he had a dollar for every time he was asked that question, he would be a rich man. And here's what we need to understand. God has not promised to spare us pain. But He has promised His love will never leave us nor forsake us. And the next time you are in a situation where you are just unable to articulate even the pain you feel and all you can do is fall on your knees maybe next to your bedside and all you can say is Abba, Father. Know in that moment that God has not withdrawn His love from you, nor has He forsaken you. Notice, secondly, Jesus experienced God's power. He prayed in verse 36, all things are possible for you. 
Jesus affirmed the sovereign control and omnipotence of God. And it is so critical anytime we are going through a Gethsemane experience that we say, Lord, I believe you are sovereign. I believe you are in control of all things. You are in control of this, though I do not understand it. And here's what Jesus knew. He knew the Father could deliver him, but if not, the Father had a greater purpose. The greater purpose would be worth it in the long run. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2 says about Jesus, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he is now set down at the right hand of the Father. He knew the eternal salvation he would purchase, and the eternal authority he would be given was worth it. And the same Father who could remove the cup from him was the same Father that could enable him to drink the cup and emerge through it. Mark down two things that you can always count on them. Two things you can always count on. If God does not use His power to remove your Gethsemane, He will use His power to see you through your Gethsemane. Is that not right this morning? Two things you can always count on if God does not use His power to remove your Gethsemane, He will use His power to see you through your Gethsemane. Notice the third resource. The Father's will. Jesus prayed, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Do you know the mystery of the incarnation of Christ is found right here? Did you know that Jesus had two wills? He had a human will and He had a divine will. This is the mystery of the incarnation, a human and a divine will joined perfectly in one person so that neither will was, uh, was amalgamated to one another, but both, both remained distinct, yet Jesus Christ was one person. And on the human level, Jesus desired deliverance, but He never wavered from His Father's will. There was an ancient Bible teacher by the name of Cyril of Alexandria. I want you to listen to what he said. He said, You see that death was not voluntary for Christ as far as the flesh was concerned, but it was voluntary, because by it, according to the will of the Father, salvation and life were given to all. Do you know ultimately this is where the battle is won or lost? We win or lose the battle in temptation and testing based on whose will we choose. If I were to ask you this morning to uh, take a little test, take out a sheet of paper, there's one question on this test, write down the answer, whose will is best? The Father's are yours. I don't think anybody would get that test question wrong. It's easy on a piece of paper to write down the Father's will is best. 
But the real test comes when we are in a crisis and we want something that is outside of God's will or different from God's will. That's when the real test comes. And this I know. It is only if we have settled that question long before the crisis comes that we will have the power to choose the will of God over the will of our flesh in the moment of pain and uncertainty and questioning. There was a well-known writer by the name of H.L. Mencken. This is what he said one time. For every complex problem, there's a solution that is simple neat and wrong. Isn't that right? For every complex problem that we face, every Gethsemane that we are called to go through, there is a solution that is simple, neat, and wrong. And it is only if we have settled a long time before the crisis, I am going to do the will of God no matter what, that we will avoid taking that wrong solution. You see, God's resources are adequate. What did Jesus find in His Gethsemane? The greatest anguish of His life he found the Father's love. He found the Father's power. He found the Father's will. And that's what's available to you and me in our Gethsemane. Now there's one other answer to this question. What happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? And the final answer is a very, very critical one. It is this. Strength for Gethsemane comes by preparing in two ways. Please mark this down. Strength to deal with the crisis does not come when the crisis comes upon you. It comes because over a long period of time you have been preparing yourself so that when the crisis comes you are ready. And I want you to notice two things that Jesus says are the ways we must prepare ourselves. Notice them. Number one, keep vigil over ourselves. Number two, maintain connection with our Father. Look with me, with, if you would, at verse 37, and notice how Gethsemane continues. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and, and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands 
of sinners. Do you know there is a tremendous hit us in the face contrast between Jesus and the disciples here? If up until now we have not been hit in the face, as we watch this contrast, it should occur now. Three times Jesus finds his friends sleeping. Three times he had told them to watch. Three times he prayed. While we are told three times he found them not praying. Three times in the gospel record, Peter boasted of his loyalty to Jesus. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 14, Peter will deny Jesus three times. By the way, did you notice in verse 37, Jesus called Peter Simon. Don't miss that. Peter has not been called <clears throat> Simon. In Mark's Gospel, since he was called to be a disciple and an apostle. And why does Jesus call him Simon now? Because Simon was his name before he became Peter when he met Jesus. And he was now acting independently of Jesus, just like he had before he had met Jesus. And whenever we are acting independently of Jesus, we are headed for a fall. It's almost guaranteed. What does Simon mean? Shifty. Unreliable. Unprepared. What does Peter mean? Rock. Sturdy, dependable. The lesson is in the name of Simon. Do you know what the word watch here that Jesus used three times is? It was referring to a guard sitting in a lookout post watching for dangers. And the disciples clearly had not taken Jesus' warning seriously. When he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, they didn't realize how weak they were. And because they were not sensitive to the danger, they were not looking for the danger, and they were unprepared. And because they were not maintaining communion with the Father, they were not secure in his love, in his power, and in his will. Can I say those two things again? Because they were not sensitive to their weakness... They were not sensitive to the danger. Therefore, they were not looking for the danger. Therefore, they were unprepared. And because they were not maintaining communion with the Father, they were not secure in His love, in His power, and in His will. And therefore, they could not draw on those resources to meet the challenge. There was a man by the name of Edward Rowe. He was a chaplain in the Civil War. He knew a lot about danger. Look what Edward Rowe had to say. In all our weaknesses, we have one element of strength if we recognize it. Knowledge of danger is often the best means of safety. 
If you were to say to me this morning, Pastor Brian, what's the lesson of Gethsemane? Here's what I would say it is. Gethsemanes will come. Watch for them. God is adequate. Walk with Him. That's the lesson. Gethsemanes will come. Watch for them. God is adequate. Walk with Him. I love the way Gethsemane ends. Would you look at verse 42? Jesus said, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And prepared and strengthened, Jesus stood, moved to meet the challenge, and faced his enemies unafraid. Prepared and strengthened, Jesus arose, moved to meet his enemies, and he faced the challenge unafraid. And he will help us do the very same. He will help us do the very same. Bow with me together in prayer. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I don't know what Gethsemanes you are facing. I don't know what olive press you are being crushed in right now. I don't know what unrelenting pressure you are under. But I know this, if you are a Christian, And you will keep vigil over yourselves and you will maintain connection with your Father. You will have His love, His power, and His will. Long before the moment of crisis arises, so that prepared and strengthened with courage, you may move forth to meet that challenge. And right now, what I would like us to do in the quietness of our own heart, inaudibly so no one else can hear, is to pray Jesus' prayer. When is the last time you have addressed your Father as Abba, Father? Would you do that now in the quietness of your heart? Abba, Father. Your love will never leave me, nor will it ever forsake me. Then secondly, would you pray, all things are possible for you. Right this very moment, though I do not know why, or I do not know how, I affirm your sovereignty and your absolute control over my circumstances. And I affirm to you, 
that if you do not remove Gethsemane from me, you will see me through Gethsemane. And then finally, would you pray, O Lord God, Abba Father, whatever may come, not what I will, but what you will. My human nature honestly cries out, remove this cup from me. Take this away. But I have determined, come what may, I am sold out to you. And I pray, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Father, today, hear the prayers from your suffering children. Hear the prayers of our weak and vulnerable human nature. Hear the prayers that cry out for deliverance, but many times go unanswered. And hear the prayers that you, God, are adequate. You have a perfect plan. And your love and your power and your will will be enough for us. And from this day forward, we will keep vigil over our lives, for we are weak. And we will maintain connection with our God. But we need Him so very desperately. And we pray all these things for Jesus' wonderful sake. Amen.